Amen. Please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 14. Matthew chapter 14, verse 13. If you're using the Black Bibles, that is on page 820. Matthew 14, 13. Last week we ended our time in, in Matthew 14 with Jesus hearing about the, the death of John the Baptist. And so our text today here, beginning in verse 13, shows that Jesus, upon receiving that news, the news of the beheading of John the Baptist, he took his disciples on a retreat by themselves. I would imagine so they could grieve together, so they could rest from the busy season of ministry that they were in. Remember, John, many of the disciples had originally been disciples of John, John the Baptist was Jesus' cousin. He was the forerunner who had, who had made, uh, prepared the way for the, the Lord. And so no doubt this was a, a sorrowful time uh, for them all. So they go on this retreat, but we're going to see that this, um, their, their um, anticipated, hoped-for rest uh, actually never really materializes because the crowds are going to find Jesus, follow Jesus to, to the place where he had went with his disciples. But that's going to lead to Jesus continuing to minister, and it's going to lead to some displays of Jesus' miraculous power. And that's what we want to study today. So we're going to consider the, uh, this morning verses 13 through 33. So if you're able, I'd ask you to stand, please, for the reading of God's word. And, and follow along as I read Matthew 14, verses 13 through 33. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. And they said to him, We have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, Bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass, and taking the five loaves and two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of the broken pieces left over, and those who ate were about five thousand men besides women and children. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It's a ghost! And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. 
But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and began to, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. Please be seated. The title of the message today is Confidence in Christ. These two accounts, really the focus of these accounts is revealing to us the person and work of Jesus Christ. As a result of these two miracles, we will see the disciples increase in their understanding of who Jesus is. And so I pray today that your understanding, I pray today that your confidence in Christ will grow as a result of us studying this passage together. So this morning I want to just work through these two accounts with you, and then I'm going to conclude with three truths about Jesus for you to confidently build your life upon. Okay, so that's the plan today. Let's, let's pick it again up in verse 13. It says, Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. Now Matthew says Jesus withdrew by himself, but the other gospel accounts tell us that the disciples were with him. I think Matthew's point here is that Jesus withdrew from the great crowds he had been ministering to. He was taking a break from ministry, so he took his disciples on this retreat again so they could all get some rest. And Luke's account, Luke 19.10, tells us that they withdrew to a town called Bethsaida. Actually, they were probably more on the outskirts of Bethsaida because it says it was a desolate place. And, and that is going to become an important factor in the story later, right? That they're in a desolate place. But we see at the end of verse 13 that their plans for rest and their plans for solitude are interrupted. It says, but when the crowds heard it, like when they hear that, hey, Jesus has just left with his disciples, they followed him on foot from the towns. <laughs> and when he went ashore, it says, verse 14, he saw a great crowd. So the crowds are so just wanting to be with Jesus, wanting to see what he's going to do, wanting to hear what he's going to say, that they... they hustle and hustle around the, the Sea of Galilee and get to the place where he's going by boat. <laughs> and they get there first. And so here, imagine Jesus and the disciples, they've, they're, and again, I don't know how far away they were from shore. I don't know if they can see the stampede coming. I don't know. But, you know, they're, I'm sure they're like, oh, we get to go and rest, right? And they're kind of going. And then as they're getting closer, they're like, wait a minute. What, what is that I'm hearing? What, what is that I'm seeing Oh, no, <laughs> right? All, all these, the crowds followed us. They're all here. I mean, again, that's probably what I would have been thinking. That's probably what the disciples might have been thinking. They might have been great, you know, so much for our rest. But we know that's not how Jesus uh, responded, right? That's not what he thought. It says, verse 14, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Though Jesus and his disciples needed rest, Jesus, when he saw the crowds, as, as he often does, he had compassion on them. Mark's account of this says he had compassion on them because he saw that they were like sheep without a shepherd. 
They were defenseless, right, like sheep are. They were lost. They were unable to provide for themselves. They were oppressed by the evil one. They were enslaved to sin and and separated from God. And so Jesus had compassion on them. They need his, his ministry. They need to hear the good news of why he has come. And so that's what he did. He, he taught them. He taught them about the kingdom of God. Matthew doesn't mention the teaching. The other accounts do. By the way, the, the feeding of the 5,000 is one of the few miracles that is, is recorded for us in all four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. I think the only other one that is it, makes it into all four is the resurrection itself. So that's kind of interesting, right, how significant they all thought this was. So we know, again, putting all the accounts together, Jesus... When he sees the crowd, he has compassion on them, and he starts teaching them about the kingdom of God and healing their sick, just as we've seen him do throughout even Matthew's gospel, proclaiming the good news that the the long-awaited kingdom had come, that he is the promised king, and then demonstrating that truth by um, bringing in the power of the kingdom, by casting out demons and healing the sick, by bringing that... that, um, we could say kind of reversing the curse of sin, right? All the things that sin was, had broken, all the things that sin was, was harming, Jesus is showing he's more powerful, and it's, again, showing why he's ultimately come, that he's come to lay down his life to defeat sin and death through, through his sacrifice, through his resurrection. So, again, imagine this scene, right? You know, they've, they, all these people have come, and, and they've come to be with Jesus, and Jesus is ministering to them, and it's just going on all day. He's teaching, he's healing, people's lives are being changed, and, and the hours are just passing by as he's doing this. And so verse, uh, that becomes a problem, <laughs> at least uh, in the disciples' mind, that's becoming a problem. Um, maybe some of you start to have, kind of worry about that when, when the hours are passing by, right, on a Sunday morning. You start thinking about, you know, it's getting to be mealtime, right? Um, that's, how, that's what the disciples were thinking about. Verse 15 says, Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. Again, this is a huge crowd. You saw at the end of the account, Matthew says it was 5,000 men, not even counting the women and children. So, I mean... You know, we're easily talking ten to 20,000 people here, right? And so, I mean, the disciples are kind of, in, in from a human standpoint, maybe they're being considerate, responsible. They know it's getting late. They're in this desolate place. There's no food nearby. Uh, they, they've got these massive crowds of people who are going to be getting hungry or already getting hungry. And so they're kind of like, Jesus, we need to wrap this up, right? Let's wrap this up, send the people away so they can go and buy food. Verse 16, but Jesus said, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. Well, what's Jesus up to here, right? Well, John's account tells us that Jesus knew what he was going to do, but he was doing this to test the disciples, Right? Jesus was giving the disciples an opportunity to demonstrate faith that Jesus could provide for this need. Right? Charles Spurgeon said about this text, Jesus wanted faith, not food from them. But look at how the disciples respond. Verse 17, they said, said to him, 
we have only five loaves here and two fish. So, I mean, I, I can just imagine the disciples are kind of, they're confused, they're kind of flabbergasted, right, with Jesus. Like, what do you mean, us give them something to eat? Look at the little bit of food we have here. How in the world can we feed all these people? How can we meet this overwhelming need? We don't have enough food or money to feed all these people. We, it says, only have five loaves and two fish. Again, Jesus had purposely put them in a situation that was beyond their resources, that was beyond their capabilities. Why? To cause them to look to him. But right but here they're not doing that, right? They're not. They should have been, been saying, well, Jesus, we, we can't feed these people, but we know you can. They should have, you know, their minds should have went back to their, their schooling growing up and thinking about how God had miraculously provided for his people through in the past. Like uh, an example of that's in 2 Kings chapter 4. How God provides through the prophet Elisha. They should have even been thinking about echoes of Moses. Like, wow, here we are out in a desolate, desolate place. And, and Jesus sees these people like, like sheep without a shepherd. And, 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 and here we have someone greater than Moses. Right? God through Moses provided for the people in the wilderness with bread from heaven. But here we have someone greater than Moses. We've seen him do all kinds of miracles. We've seen him turn, at this point, right, they'd seen him turn water into wine. They'd they'd seen him um, uh, uh, heal the sick. They've, They've seen him even raise the dead. But they didn't look to Jesus. No, rather, they're, they're still thinking from a human resources standpoint. They didn't respond in faith. Rather, we could say they responded in the flesh. We don't have enough food. We don't have enough money. And so verse 18, he says, bring them here. Like, bring the food you've talked about. Bring it to me. Then he ordered, verse 19, the crowds to sit down on the grass, taking the five loaves and the two fish, and looked up to heaven and said a blessing, right? He's praising God, thanking God for his provision of this food. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And, and we know from the tense of the verb there about talking about he gave it to them, he just kept on giving it to them, right? So again, you know, try to picture in your mind's eye what this would have looked like. You know, he, he just gives one of the, you know, here, Peter, here's, a, here's some food. You go take that to that group over there. And then here he's giving some to John. You go take that. And they, they give it. And then they come back, and he's got some more for them. And it just, the food doesn't run out, right? He just keeps giving them more and more food to give to the crowds. So the disciples are witnessing this firsthand, aren't they? They have a front row seat, and they're even participants in the sense of they're taking this food. They're, they're seeing Jesus keep providing this food. They're taking it to the people. And so this is showing his, his deity, isn't it? It's showing his, that he is God. And again, we've been studying Colossians on Wednesday nights, and, and so my, my mind goes there a lot in, in these days. Colossians 1.16 talks about he through whom all things were made. Talking about Jesus, right? So here's Jesus through whom all things were made. He kept creating tons of, of the, this bread, tons of this fish between the palms of his hands. Because he's Lord. Jesus is Lord of all creation. 
They've, again, back in Matthew chapter 8, they've seen him have power over creation. They've seen him still, still the winds and the, and the waves just with his voice. And so they know he's, or they should know he's Lord of creation. And here he's demonstrating that again. Verse 20 shows just the extent of Jesus' provision here. It says, they all ate, talking about all the crowds, they all ate and were satisfied. So this wasn't just, you know, kind of, you, you get one bite to kind of tide you over here until you can get home. No, this is like, hey, eat and have your, your fill. They all ate and were satisfied. The needs of everyone was fully met with plenty left over. Look, it says, verse 20, they took up 12 baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And here, then Matthew tells us the size of the crowd. Those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. So not only did the disciples take all the food, but then we know from the other accounts, they're the ones gathering up the leftover food, and there's 12 baskets left over, one for each disciple, right? So I don't know if they just carried this food with them the rest of the day or what, but um, what what an object lesson, right? Twelve disciples, and we know that Matthew's going to make this point later, twelve, 12 disciples standing for twelve tribes of Israel, but the point is Jesus can provide for his people. Right? Jesus can fully provide. He's powerful enough to provide for every need, and each disciple carried back with him a physical reminder of that, of Christ's power, of his faithfulness, of his compassion, of his provision. Immediately then, 22, uh, that's why I wanted to handle these two accounts together because they, they really are connected, right? So they, all, all this, this crowd has been fed and provided for, fully satisfied. And then Matthew says what happens next here, verse 22. Immediately, he, being Jesus, made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And so that's kind of curious because that, that verb there about talking about making the disciples get in the boat, it's actually a very strong verb. It's like he compelled, he forced, he urged them. He's like, okay, guys, time to go, you know. I mean, it's kind of like how I see some of you men do when your, your wife has been talking here a little too long right after church, you know. Um, no, I, I'm thinking Jesus was even more forceful than that. He's like, come on, guys, get in the boat and go. Now, I'm like, why? What's, what's the rush now, right? Everybody's eating now. What's the hurry? Um, well, again, I, th- I think we get a clue when we read John's account of this because in John's account of this, in John chapter 6, you see that um, there's like this messianic fervor going, right? This is, John tells us in John 6 that at, after Jesus doing this, the people were ready to come and make him king by force. Right, they were, you know, again, Jesus, by this time, he's been teaching, he's been healing, he's been doing several miracles, and word about him is getting out, and, and so more and more people are starting to realize, yes, he is the Messiah, but they have the wrong view of the Messiah, right? They're thinking, yes, Jesus, great, you are the promised king, come on now, let's go overthrow the Romans, right? Let's do it right here and now. Let's just go march on the Capitol right now. They didn't understand that Jesus had not come to lead a political revolution, but rather to deliver them from their bondage to sin. And how this ties into the disciples is I think the disciples were not immune to that kind of 
mistakenness, <laughs> right? I mean, remember the disciples, they're, you know, they're, they're wanting the kingdom to be restored to Israel as well. One of them is Simon the Zealot, right? I mean, if anybody's a revolutionary, right, he is. So I think Jesus is not wanting them to get caught up in this, this wrong kind of thinking. And, and so he's like, all right, guys, time to go. You, know, you guys get in the boat. I'll dismiss the crowd, quiet this down. And so that's what happens. So Jesus dismisses the crowd by himself, doesn't allow the disciples to get sucked into that hysteria. Verse 23 then says what happens next. After he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Remember, the disciples are in the boat. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. So you have the picture of what's happening now. Jesus is up on the mountain praying. We see him do that a lot. Luke especially tells us about that a lot. Jesus was dependent on his father. Right? So he's praying. Uh, this has been a kind of a crazy experience. Uh, but the disciples, they're out in the boat on the, on the Sea of Galilee. And they're in a storm. And back again, back in Matthew chapter um, 8, the disciples were in a storm, right? They were, that was when Jesus was asleep with them on, on the boat, and they were in a storm. They thought they were going to die, and they wake Jesus up, and he stills the wind and the waves. Well, this time, they're in a storm, but Jesus is not with them. He's up on the mountain. They're in the boat alone. And, and it's a little different. This time, it doesn't seem like the boat is necessarily in danger of sinking, but it's just the fact that the, the wind is so strong that they're not able to make any headway. You know, they're, they're trying to get somewhere and the wind is just continuing to just beat against them the wrong way. And, and no doubt then the waves too. But, so they're just rowing and rowing. Jesus is praying all night and they're rowing all night, right? Because in the next verse, verse 25, it's going to talk about the fourth watch of the night when Jesus does come to them. That means that was between, the fourth watch was somewhere between 3 and 6 a.m. So they've been out there all night, rowing, not making any headway against this wind, fighting the wind and the waves. They're still just out in the middle of the lake. No doubt they're frustrated, tired, exhausted, uh, maybe scared. Verse 25, and in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. So now Jesus comes out to them in the boat, walking on the sea. So once again, we have another miracle clearly showing that Jesus is God, right? He made the waters, and so he can walk on them. Job 9.8 is, is a section there in Job chapter 9 where uh, it's talking about God being the creator, and in verse 8 it says, Who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea? That's what Jesus is doing, right? You know, he's just walking right on the waves, trampling the waves of the sea. Jesus, the sovereign creator, is exerting his control over creation. Again, like Hebrews says, The one who holds all things together by his powerful word, right? He holds all creation together. Now he was having that creation hold him up on the water as he walked across it. Verse 26, but when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it is a ghost. 
and they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus, verse 27, spoke to them saying, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. So rather than them being (laughs) comforted and like, yeah, Jesus is here, right? You know, they're scared. They're terrified. They think they're seeing a ghost. And of course, they, you know, they wouldn't have been expecting, I, I get it, right? They wouldn't have been expecting to just see Jesus walking on the water. Plus, in the Jewish mind, um, the sea was a dangerous, dangerous place. I, I mean, they saw the sea as a place of, of the Jews did not like the sea. <laughs> they were not like seafaring people, right? They, they saw the sea as a place of chaos, a place of evil, um, and so there were many Jews that believed there were evil spirits that lived in the sea, or they, you know, there was all these different superstitions about if you drown at the sea, then your ghost is kind of around there just haunting the sea. So, I mean, all this is kind of like we saw with Herod last week, right? All this wrong notions is kind of mixed in, in their mind as well. Of course, we know Jesus came. Why did Jesus come to them, right? He came to help them, right? He's not trying to scare them. So he says, take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. Again, we we would probably miss this, but um, if we were Greek speakers, I think it would stick out to us that it is I. That's literally Jesus saying, I am. I am. He's taking for himself the, the, name, the divine name Yahweh, right? The name that God revealed to Moses in the burning bush on uh, Exodus 3. I am Yahweh, the self-existent one. The disciples were probably too scared at the time to make that connection, but, but later, no doubt, I'm sure as the Spirit is leading Matthew to write this, now post-resurrection, it's all, all the dots are being connected for him, right? In a beautiful way. There's, there's Yahweh in the flesh, walking on the water, coming to help us, to deliver us. Here's Jesus, again, the God-man, God in the flesh, walking on the water before their very eyes, fulfilling Yahweh's words in Isaiah 51.12, where it says, I, I am he who comforts you. Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies, of the son of man who's made like grass, and have forgotten the Lord, your maker, who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth. So at this time, the, the disciples weren't, like Isaiah saying, they weren't necessarily scared of other men. They were scared of the sea, right, or of the waves. And they were, you know, but you see how the, the same point is being driven home to them time and time again, right? Guys, do you realize who I am? You guys were overwhelmed with the, the circumstances about the the crowds and the food, I am the creator. I spoke this world into existence. I can provide for my creation. Now here, you guys, you're you're struggling against the, the wind, but I'm the one who made the wind. I'm the one who made the waves. Take heart. Don't be afraid. I'm with you. I'm gonna help you, right? Verse 28, Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, and in the Greek, this is a condition that it, um, it's, it's, it's really Peter saying, since it, it is you, Lord, since it is you, command me to come to you on the water. 
Now, that's really interesting, isn't it? I think Matthew's the only one that records this part for us. Um, it's a bold request from Peter, right? And, I mean, we see this from Peter. I mean, he, he you know, he just displays these, in, um, he has highs and lows, doesn't he? It's like he'll, he'll display these, these the ultimate uh, examples of faith, but then he, because of his being impulsive, he also often is the first to fail, too, right, and put his foot in his mouth, but... This is a bold request from Peter. Again, by this time, the disciples have seen Jesus perform a lot of miracles. They've even been been equipped and sent out to perform miracles themselves in his name. Remember, he's done that back in Matthew 10 when he sent them out to minister in his name. So, you know, Peter's saying, hey, I'll do it too, right? Jesus, let me do it with you. Verse 29, he, being Jesus, said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. So far, so good, right? Verse 30, but when he, Peter, saw the wind, he was afraid and began beginning to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand, took hold of him, saying to him, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? That verb doubt, um, it's only used one other time in all, the, all of the New Testament, and it's by Matthew, in Matthew 28, 17, right, right at the Great Commission, right, where the risen Christ is commissioning them to go and make disciples. Um, that verb doesn't mean a theological uncertainty. It doesn't even really mean unbelief. Rather, it just means hesitation, a wavering. It literally means being in two minds, so I think we can definitely um, sympathize with Peter about this because it's like Peter at the same, you know, at, two things are happening at the same time. One is he believes that Jesus is the Messiah, right? And I think he's starting to even believe he's the son of God, right? But at the same time, he also sees the danger. He sees the circumstances, right? He sees the waves. He feels the wind. And so he's scared. So the, He's doubting, right? Peter, Peter started off well, but when he got his eyes off Jesus and started focusing on, if, to put it in our application, start focusing on the trials, start focusing on the hardships, rather than focusing on who Christ is, right? When he started doing that, he became afraid, starts sinking. So he is an example for us, a good example, and, and then kind of a poor example, but an example for us, isn't he? Peter's faith was strong enough to get him out of the boat and walking on the water, but his faith was not strong enough to stand up in the midst of the storm. That's why I wanted uh, Brandon to read James for us today, right? Blessed are those who um, persevere under trial, withstand, right? Trials and difficulties, they... They, they cause us to, to doubt, cause us to waver. We want out from under them. We, we can get our eyes off of Christ and his promises of the gospel and who he is and the, his, his word, and we start focusing on the dangers and the hardships, right? But the Bible tells us not to do that. It says, no, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Remain under that trial, trusting in the Lord to give you, to provide for you what you need, knowing that he's accomplishing good even through that trial in your life. 
Jesus, of course, rescues Peter, lifting him out of the water. Verse 32, and when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. So just like what happened in chapter 8, the storm miraculously stops all at once. And here's the climax, verse 33. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. What a great climax that is, isn't it? This, this worship, this, re, this response, this confession, truly, you are the Son of God. The multiplying bread, the walking on the water, the stilling of the storm. The disciples are realizing that Jesus is more than a prophet who just does some miracles, right? He's more than, than just uh, some human king who's, who's come to lead a revolt. No, he is the Son of God. And this is the first time, interestingly, that, Jesus, that the disciples address Jesus with this title, Son of God. We've seen, so far in Matthew's gospel, we've seen the demons address Jesus that way. We've seen Matthew kind of give some commentary that way, just, you know, as the narrator here. But this is the first time the disciples are saying, you are the son of God. So Jesus, as the good shepherd, he's he's shepherding them. He's guiding them. He's sanctifying them. Their understanding is growing Back in chapter 8, verse 27, with the first stilling of the storm, they said, what sort of person is this? What what sort of man is this? Now here they are confessing, truly, you are the Son of God. So you see this when you study the Gospels, by the way. You see this progression of faith for the disciples, right? Um. They, they, they begin, it's, it happens in steps and layers. You know, they, they start to understand more and more of who Jesus is. And then, you know, even once they confess that he's the Messiah, the Son of God, they, they have to start then understanding, well, what does that mean? Like, what kind, you know, what, what uh, is, has he come to do, right? We can't put our beliefs on it and, and our expectations of what we think the Messiah should do. And so that's, that's the progression we're seeing here. They're growing in their understanding. Jesus is continuing to reveal himself to them so that they will grow in their understanding of who he is and in their confidence in who he is, right? Again, it's not just that intellectual understanding. It's that living it out. It's that when the rubber meets the road, when you're in that point of crisis, taking those truths and and staking your life on them and responding in that way, trusting in him, looking to him. And the Lord does the same with us today. He grows us in our understanding of who he is. He sanctifies us by his spirit, through his word. He continues to reveal Jesus to us. Why? So that we would believe in Jesus, so that we would worship Jesus, trust in him fully, and serve him all the days of our life, bringing glory to him. And that leads me then to how I want to wrap up our time together. I want to close by giving three areas to be confident in Christ. Again, as I meditated on these particular passages and just thinking about, you know, the symbolism and what what Jesus was was trying to teach them, I, I just wanted to highlight three areas that I pray that each one here today will be confident in Christ regarding these three areas. Number one, Jesus is the only Savior and Lord. 
Jesus is the only Savior and Lord. I mean, again, clearly we see from the text today, Jesus is the eternal Son of God become flesh. And so being fully God and fully man, as Paul will say in 1 Timothy, means that Jesus is uniquely qualified to be that mediator. He's uniquely qualified to reconcile sinners like you and me to our holy and just God. He's the only one because he's God and man. He's the perfect mediator. And that's exactly what Jesus did. Though he was God in the flesh, Jesus willingly laid down his life on the cross as a sacrifice for sin. The Bible says he died as a substitute, taking the sin and punishment of his people on himself. He was sinless, but he took the sin and punishment of his people on himself, on the cross, so that all who would believe in him can be forgiven. Jesus died under the just wrath of God and then on the third day rose from the dead in victory over sin and death. And his resurrection and exaltation to his throne in heaven declares that Christ alone is Savior and Lord. The Bible says there is no other name by which we can be saved. It's Jesus alone. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the one who delivers us from the wrath to come because he has satisfied God's wrath. He's turned away God's wrath forever from all those who are united to him through faith. And so that's, I mean, that's where it starts, right? If you're talking about what do I need to believe, what do I need to know, what do I need to be confident in about Jesus, it's this. That he is the only Savior and Lord. And maybe some of you today have been trying other ways to be accepted by God. You think, well, if I can just, you know, try to be a good person, try to be kind, uh, go to church, right? Or, you know, just kind of obey my parents, whatever, then God's going to accept me. But that, the Bible says No. We're all sinners that fall short. All our righteous deeds are like filthy rags before a holy God. We need Christ's perfect righteousness credited to us. And we all, no matter how hard we try in our own strength, we sin. We sin outwardly, we sin inwardly, and God cares about all of that. He wants obedience from the heart. And so we need our sins wiped away. And only Jesus can do that. And that's why he came. So we need to understand, I pray that everyone here today will understand that Jesus alone is Savior and Lord. Only Jesus is fully God and fully man. Only Jesus died and rose again. Only Christ's perfect life and atoning death can forgive your sins and give you life forever with God. Jesus is Savior and Lord. And so the Bible says, that we need to embrace that. We need to believe that. We need to turn from our sins and by faith embrace him as Savior and Lord. We need to trust in him alone for our right standing with God. And we need to acknowledge, yes, you are Lord and I want to live for you. And if you haven't done that today, I urge you to do that today. Turn to him because he's Savior and Lord. 
To those of you who have already done that by God's grace, and I know that's many here today, be confident. Be confident that Jesus is Savior and Lord. Right? The world doesn't believe that. The wor- though the world rejects him, Jesus is on his throne. And though the world ignores him, Jesus is coming again. And though the world denies him, they will all stand before him someday. So be confident that Jesus is Savior and Lord. Secondly, here's the second thing to be confident in Christ about. Jesus loves me and provides what I need. Jesus loves me and provides what I need. If you're a Christian today, then you can have confidence that Jesus loves you. I mean, the Bible is full of it, right? The first song we learn is, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Jesus loves you. He left heaven to come and save you. He laid down his life to pay for your sins. He sent his spirit to give you new life and draw you to him in faith. He ministers now as your faithful high priest. Having given his life and his spirit, Jesus will continue to provide what you need as you follow him. And so he loves you. Be confident in that, that Jesus loves you and he will provide what you need. That's what this account reminds us of, right? To be looking to Christ for our daily provision. Jesus, by his spirit, through his word, will provide all that we need in our Christian lives. And we have lots of needs, don't we? Even as I was praying this morning, and I I know it's true. I know it's true in my life. We need faith. We need strength. We need peace. We need hope. We need need grace and and love to, to, to do what he's calling us to do. Jesus provides that. How? Through his word. Through his spirit through the means of grace, through, through his body, bringing the word and reminding us the truth. Jesus provides what you need. He loves you. And so Christian today, look to him. Look to him daily to provide what you need. Feast on his words. He is the bread of life. Thirdly and finally then, Jesus satisfies the hunger of my soul. Jesus is the only Lord and Savior. Jesus loves me and provides what I need. And now thirdly, Jesus satisfies the hunger of my soul. I think a lot of us would um, give mental assent to that. But most of us are not very good at living that out. Jesus alone satisfies the hunger of my soul. We were all created with a God-shaped vacuum in our souls. And as sinners, we try to fill that vacuum with all kinds of substitutes from the world. And sadly, even as Christians, we often turn to worldly things for our joy, for our peace, for our comfort. But the Bible is so clear and our experience plays it out as well. Only Christ can satisfy the deep hunger of our souls. Right? 
Only Christ can satisfy the deep hunger of our souls. The idols of this world provide temporary escape, but they leave us with this gnawing emptiness in our souls. Why? Because we were made to enjoy God and glorify him forever. Right? You remember that, don't you, Trenton? We were made to enjoy God and glorify him forever. Me and some of the young guys were talking about that a few weeks ago. So that's why the things of this world don't satisfy. Because that's not what we were created and redeemed to, to enjoy. And so, Christian, I call you today, I urge you today, be, to be confident that Jesus satisfies the hunger of your soul. If you truly believe that, and only you can answer this for yourself, because, you know, I don't, I'm not with you 24-7. If you truly believed that Jesus satisfies the hunger of your soul, how would your daily practice be different? Right? We, we all need to quit looking to the things of this world. Rather, we need to daily seek Christ. When sin tempts you, when sin promises and dangles some kind of satisfaction before you, you can flee. Because you have the Spirit, because you're a new creation, and because you are confident that no, Jesus alone satisfies the deep hungers of my soul. That's the way to defeat sin. Sin says, hey, come, come do this. This is going to be so much fun. This is going to give you peace. This is going to give you joy. You say, no, I have all I need in Christ. And I know that's just going to leave me being ashamed, feeling ashamed and empty and, and discouraged. I'm going to seek Christ. So let us daily, by faith, seek Christ in his word, through prayer, through, through personal worship, through the means of grace corporately, and let us believe, loved ones, that he is what our soul truly needs. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we praise you. You are the eternal son of God who became flesh. We praise you that you are the one true mediator between God and man. We praise you for your humility that you would leave heaven to come and Become one of us, yet without sin. We praise you for your, your faithfulness, your perfect obedience to the Father. We praise you for your love and laying down your life. No one took it from you. You laid it down on your own accord. We praise you for your powerful resurrection. We praise you for your spirit who, who um, gives us new life and draws us to you. Thank you for saving us, Lord. Just... I think of the, the way the Bible describes that, how um, just like you, you reached down and saved Peter out of the, the water, Lord, that's, that's how you saved us from our sins. We, we were drowning, we were hopeless, we were powerless, and yet in love you reached down and drew us out of that miry pit, out of that pit of our sin, out of that pit of separation from you, 
And I praise you and thank you how you continue to teach us and sanctify us. And, and we, like the disciples, um, we, we lose sight. We forget to look to you. We, look, we look, uh, look to our own resources and our own strength. We look to things of this world. We take our eyes off you. Thank you for, for uh, correcting us, for coming alongside and continuing to teach us and reveal yourself to us. Please grow us. Please help us to remember to look to you, to be confident in who you are. May we all, um, because of that confidence, may we all um, daily seek you and feast on your words and find joy and satisfaction for our souls. Please be merciful to any here today who don't know you. Father, may you, through your word, reveal that you are Savior and Lord. We ask all this in your name and for your glory. Amen. Will you stand, please? We'll sing another song of praise this morning.